These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. The Mitanni government, and the Hurrians in general, tended to leave very little written record which has survived to this day. They were undoubtedly literate. We have enough attested from their language that it's decently understood, though really two full samples to have a full vocabulary. And we know they wrote just as much as their fellow great powers. Unfortunately, however, the northern regions of the Near East receive far more rainfall than the almost completely arid Southlands, which means that clay tablets and wood with text inscribed on it will have decayed far more quickly up there unless securely buried. Those tablets that were safely buried were probably inside of towns, but Hurrian and Mitanni towns appear to have been, on average, smaller than the great metropolises of Mesopotamia and the Levant, and so they're harder to find because they left less trace on the environment. Additionally, in the very flat south, it's very easy to spot the distinctive rising mounds called tells, which mark where an ancient city may once have stood, or to see traces carved into the ground with satellite imagery. However, in the greener and hillier north, it's much harder to distinguish a tell from a natural hill, and the scars of human industry are more quickly covered over by plant life. And of course, to add to all the natural challenges of Hurrian archaeology, there is the fact that they lived in a region which now spans across four national borders, Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Turkey, nations which have not always been stable or at peace with each other in the modern time. And that same area now houses the Kurdish people, who themselves have shaky relationships with all four modern nations. The political barriers to locating towns that belong to a long nation that most people have never even heard of are not insignificant. In the previous episodes, we've been relying mostly on Hurrian texts, which have been copied and preserved by the Hittites, who were in later periods big fans of Hurrian culture. However, there is one significant archaeological site that covers the Mitanni period, and so over the next few episodes, we're going to be looking deeply at the town of Nuzi, perhaps the best archaeological deposit of texts from the Mitanni kingdom. Nuzi, however, is no great metropolis, not even by the somewhat limited standards of the Mitanni, and so it tells us only a limited amount about the high culture and great power politics of the kingdom as a whole. However, as a modest town of no particular significance, it is perhaps a much better representation of who the Hurrians were as a people than perhaps even their capital would be. Nuzi is located in what is today North Iraq, not too far from the modern city of Kirkuk. Indeed, Nuzi was part of the territory of the Arapan lords, who had their manor houses in what's now a northern suburb of Kirkuk. These Arapan lords, in turn, owed their allegiance during the Late Bronze Age to the Mitanni. The local political situation, however, will be our focus much later. Today, I want to look at one of the most exciting things about the Nuzi Cache. The excavation of full houses with intact archives of personal and family documents. By itself, this is nothing particularly unusual. The archaeological record is littered with receipts and wedding contracts and lawsuits and all the paperwork of daily life. But being able to tie multiple documents to a single person or family and through them tell a story pulled straight out of daily life is something hard to do for people who aren't kings in the Bronze Age. 
Our hero here is Hutia, son of Kashia. Now, Hero might be overstating things a bit, but all these documents were found in his house, a mark of him preserving the records of a hard-fought legal battle in case issues rose again. Our topic is a land dispute, and from the documents that he has left us, we can piece together at least the main aspects of this dispute. Our first document initiates the legal process. Thus, Tarmia, son of Kashia, and Utazina, son of Petiai, and Akul-Eni, son of Palteshib, and Tai-Teshib, son of Kiziharpa, and Tumshimana, son of Turikantar. These five men all say, All the fields on the far side of the river surrounding the Dimtu Tower of Kazuk are all part of the Dimtu of Kazuk, and we've given over command of these lands and features to Hatia, son of Kushia, for the purposes of the coming legal proceedings. Should Hatia win the case, Hatia will take one share from among the fields and the Dimtu Tower for his own, and we five shall divide the rest among ourselves. Should we violate this statement that we've just made, we shall pay to Hatia one mina of silver and one mina of gold. This tablet was written after being read aloud at the gate facing the town of Teresha, witnessed by a number of additional people. So let's just unpack that, since much like modern legal writing, it's quite particular in what it means. The short version is that there are five men who together own a plot of land, called the Dimtu of Kazuk. They're appointing Hatia as the legal representative of this land for the purposes of the coming lawsuit, essentially making Hatia the lawyer representing these five men. In exchange, they promise to pay Hatia once the case is won, either with a share of land or with a fairly substantial sum of money. The general outline here is simple enough, but there are some details to clear up before we move on. The case revolves around a plot of land known as a dimtu, which is a word that does not appear to have any clear translation into English. The very notion of a dimtu comes from an environment which is radically different from any we're familiar with, and really emphasized how, even though we've spent so much time talking about kings and empires and such, the vast majority of the land was unused, unsettled, and frankly dangerous. Raids from other tribes and villages were a fact of life even in the most peaceful times, and even just wild animals were an active threat to farms and families. And so the Hurrian solution to this was to construct fortified watchtowers called Dimtu Towers, and whatever land that tower could see and easily defend was the Dimtu land of that tower. This tower would be the focal point of a tiny farming community, for at the base of the tower we find the ruins of a few small houses. Maybe a wine press if that particular spot made wine, perhaps a mill for grinding grain, maybe a spinner and a loom for making cloth, and maybe even in some places around Nuzi, some glass manufacturing facilities, for the town of Nuzi, just coincidentally, happened to be one of the earliest centers of true glass making in the Near East. Basically, this Dimtu appears to have had space for a few families, plus all the farming and industrial tools needed for working the land and making product out of whatever is grown. We could perhaps think of it as the farmhouse, centrally located in the middle of the fields. 
If there's a threat, whoever's standing in the tower will see it and call out. If the threat is great, then the farmers can retreat into the lightly fortified manor house and hopefully be a hard enough target that the enemy will leave them alone. Well, this particular Dim 2 tower, as well as all the buildings and light fortifications, was originally built by a man named Kazook. It isn't clear if he was simply a pioneer breaking new ground or if he had some kind of royal writ to the land. Indeed, it isn't even clear how long ago this Kazook actually lived compared to the present lawsuit. But whatever the case, the land which Kazook once owned has passed down through generations of marriages, inheritance, and sales to five men. These five men are now facing a legal issue, and so they've selected a sixth man, who appears to be the brother of the first man named. Sadly, there's not much we know about Hatia. Almost certainly he was not a dedicated lawyer. It's highly unlikely that such a small town could have supported a class of legal professionals. He may have had scribal training, though we can't say for sure since these particular documents all have the names of other scribes at the bottom. We do know of a scribe in the Nuzi corpus named Hatia, but there's a few people named Hatia, and so it's impossible to say if they're all the same one. Perhaps, however, these other scribes were hired as neutral writers, since Hutia couldn't well be writing legal documents in which he had a stake. Most likely, Hutia is old, since he drops out partly through the legal proceedings, either sick or dead, and his son will take over for the second half. We can guess that he was somewhat important in the community, important enough to have a bit of free time for legal matters, someone well-known enough to perhaps have a working relationship with the judges, and someone educated enough, either from scribal school or through years of business experience, to navigate the legal system. So we have a legal dispute over the land called the Dimtu of Kazook, and it'll be Hatia who will be the lawyer for one side of the matter. The next document appears to be the court record of the first court appearance. Here we have a new name alongside Hatia, Ashtar Tilla, whose name appeared among the witnesses from the previous document, though we don't know anything about him. Hatia and Ashtar Tilla took to court before judges, the men Belshunu and Shatukewi. Hatia and his friend Ashtar Tilla asserted the following. These men are tenant farmers, and yet they've been withholding our land by force. The defendants, Bel Shanu and Shatukewi, replied by saying, But we paid for that land and were adopted into it through legal family ties. We are not tenants, we do not owe any rent, because we own this land outright following a legal purchase. And so the judge orders that the matter reconvene at a later date, the festival day of the month of Mitaruni which is approximately February on the modern calendar, ordering that the defendants prove that they have not seized the land and had in fact purchased it outright. When they reconvened, Shantukewi brings some sort of evidence in the form of a marriage contract. Some man named Ukuya, as part of a bride price, gave to Shantukewi the land of the Dimtu of Kazuk. With this, the court adjourned. Whatever was decided was not recorded, but it appears that the matter was unresolved and that further steps were ordered before the court would look at the issue a second time. This part is fairly simple, at least as far as it goes. 
the defendants are currently occupying the Dimtu of Kazuk, farming on it. Hatia and the men he's representing believe they own the land and are owed rent. The defendants believe they purchased it from some mysterious fellow named Ukuya, and they are living on it legitimately. The question now is, how does one establish that the plot of land in question is owned by Ukuya, or by the descendants of Kazuk? Well, it seems that this is the question that the judges themselves asked, and so the next document is an official record of a court communication to a royal minister. This letter reads, To the Shikalus, the royal ministers of Mitanni, say, We, the judges Zalia, Shukriya, and Artirwi, report, Hutia, son of Kashia, took to court before us Shatukewi, Belshunu, and Zilip Okur. Hutia declared that the Dimtu Tower of Kazuk, together with the fields in that Dimtu, belonged to a man named Kazuk, who was the ancestor of Hutia and those he represented. This land has been rented to the defendants, and yet now they are withholding the land payments and cultivating it on their own. And so we, the judges, summoned the defendants, and they replied, This town belongs to the palace, and we are the holders of the land. As for the name of the place being Kazuk, this is just wrong. The name of the place is properly Tabukur, but in the past, the man Turi Kintar stole it from the town. Then Zilip Ukur, one of the defendants, stated that the land in question was given to him, and he cultivated it as his own. Then Shatakewi and Belshunu provided with documents that they were adopted by Ukuya, who was the original holder of the land. The judges then tell the royal ministers, Since the town is in the possession of the household of the king, we are bringing the case to you. Please tell these things to the king. The letter is then sealed by the three judges. Now things here are looking bad for Hutia and the descendants of Kazuk here. They claim an ancestral right, but the defendants appear to have solid evidence on their side as well. It seems that the king of Mitanni may have granted this land to this Ukuya fellow at some point in the past. Presumably, this was part of or following the Mitanni conquest of the area. And isn't that the whole point of a conquest, to redistribute land and wealth? And then, the judges have clearly seen tablets transferring title to the current landowners. However, as we'll see as this case develops, the defenses shot themselves in the foot here, giving Hutia the key he needs to turn things around. Now, this whole case could have ended right here. A royal judgment from the king could have decided definitively in favor or against Hutia. However, for whatever reason, the king deferred judgment here, appearing to say that more evidence was required to decide. Now, we don't have anything from the royal side of this question because we've never uncovered the capital, and indeed, this case is probably so small that we won't even see records of it if we do find the capital someday. But we're forced to speculate here. I could think there are two possibilities. First, and actually less likely, is that the king in some sense didn't care. Maybe he was busy, maybe the matter of a land dispute in a small town was beneath him. 
In this view, it may have been royal prerogative for the Batani kings to decide the issue, but he decided that either he didn't care or he didn't have enough local knowledge to decide wisely, and just sent the matter back to the local judges. Alternately, and what I think is probably more likely, the king or whichever royal minister he delegated this to actually did make an effort to investigate the case. In this uh, complete guess, the king's agents looked through the Mitanni archives to see if they could in fact find any royal decrees surrounding that particular plot of land. The Mitanni state and their neighboring great powers may not have kept the sort of all-encompassing bureaucratic records offices that modern governments do, but they did keep records of things, and they had a functioning scribal class. If they did hunt for an edict that gave this land away, it seems they couldn't find it. Whatever the case, the case went back to the local judges with a request for more evidence. In the meantime, however, Hatia vanishes from our scene, to be replaced by his son, Kelteshub. Did he die? Did he get sick? Did he simply get busy and delegate the task to his son? We hope it's simply the last, though this probably seems least likely, especially if we assume that Hutia was selected to represent the landowners because of his distinguishment and established character in the town both of which suggest a fair bit of age. It isn't clear if Kelteshub instigated the next legal action or if it came down as orders from the royal court as a result of the judge's letters to the ministers, or if Hatia had gotten it started before passing the torch on to his son. Whatever the case, our next document is probably the most interesting out of the whole group. Thus, Hutip Apu, the regional governor, and Akia, the Shukalu royal minister, dispatched a message concerning the matter of Kelteshub, son of Hutia. They said, Go and question the towns around the relevant Dimtu district, those to the right and the left of the Dimtu. And so I made a survey of the towns. I questioned these seven towns, and the towns of Ezira, Hashlunia, Etesheni, Kolutu, Uatka, Tilushakaki and Iram Adad. All of these towns agreed that the name of the Dimtu in question is Kazuk, named for a man called Kazuk, and no one in these towns has ever heard it by another name. However, two men named Wantari and Kalia assert that it is the Dimtu of Tabukur, for it's always been held by Tabukur. This letter, likely meant as evidence in a trial, ends with the seal of the regional governor, confirming its validity. Here, then, is the crux of the matter. The defendants have documents asserting their claims to the Dimtu land of Tabukur, while Hutia and now his son Kelteshub have an ancestral claim to the Dimtu of Kazuk. In the absence of any central records on this matter, it seems the best or perhaps only way of settling this matter is to ask what everyone else thinks. Is the ownership of the land contested with some towns thinking one way while others think the opposite? In this case, it seems that all seven nearby towns were in unanimous agreement that the Dimtu Tower and Fields had been established by a man named Kazuk at some point in the past. Let's just pause to look at this. This official, coming out of Nuzi, has seen seven or eight small towns in 
pretty easy range of the DIM-2 in question, which should give us a good sense of what Hurrian settlement really looked like. This wasn't an empire of a few large cities, it was one of small towns, evenly blanketing the land. One where everyone knows every family, field, and farmstead for quite a way around. Quite a different environment from the massive cities of Mesopotamia, though likely the as yet undiscovered Mitanni capital city was a modest metropolis like the Hittite capital Hattusha. Anyway, if everyone's in agreement that the Dimtu is called Kazuk, then who are these Wantari and Kalia that are disputing it? Well, just as Hutia has died in the intervening period, the previous defendants as well seem to have either vanished or died. In fact, it may be that these later tablets continue the case only after decades of letting it lay dormant. Though my own opinion is that while this legal dispute may have lasted years, it's a little hard to imagine it lasting decades, just because of the small size of the relative communities. And the fact that many of the same judges and witnesses signed this document as is signed in other places. Therefore, it seems likely that either the previous defendants have sold off their questionable claims to some new fools, or they've picked up these two as lawyers to represent them. However, we know from another tablet that Wantari is in fact the son of Akuya, the man who may have sold the land to the original defendants in the first place. It could be that these original defendants, since they had a clear record of sale, were presumed not to be the root cause of the confusion, and that the court has shifted focus to the man who started all the trouble, Ukuya. Whatever this change in defendants may have signified, we have a second record, in which the inhabitants of the nearby towns are again questioned. The towns of Ezira, Shimaruni, Etesheni, Ashuri, Tilashikaki, Hashlunia, Kulutu, Kumri, and Waltukuria. Six of those were questioned in the previous tablet, and three new towns were investigated this time. In all nine of these total towns, they attested that the Dimtu in question could only be the Dimtu of Kazuk, and there is no other name for it. This second tablet is damaged, but where the first was signed by the regional governor, the second is signed by local officials of Nuzi, such as the judges and some of the witnesses we saw before, suggesting that the survey was carried out independently by two different authorities, and each came to the same conclusion. With this, it looks like things are drawing to a head, and indeed, there's only one more document remaining, the Grand Climax, the record of the final trial in which the matter is ultimately decided. This one was found inside of a case, a protective covering to preserve it as especially as a document of particular significance. On the case, we have the seal of one Uriteshub, scribe, imprinted on the clay. The document itself reads, Kelteshub, son of Hutia, took to court before judges Wantari, son of Ukuya. Kelteshub asserted, Wantari, by force, withholds the Dimtu Tower of Kazuk, standing on the far side of the river, which is mine, together with my fields. Of course, when Kelteshub says these things, it should be understood that both he and Wantari are representatives for a larger group of people. Kelteshub does not own the fields himself, and Wantari is not sitting there alone, keeping others out of the Dimtu Tower. But anyway, Kelteshub continues, I have been continually raising claim against him in the court of law. 
again, alighting over the fact that his father was the one who originally laid the claim, but here, again, he's representing everyone who is or has ever been on that side of the lawsuit, and have appealed to the king. The royal court replied to Hutip Apu, the regional governor, saying, question the towns on the right part and the left part of the Dimtu region and report back. Hutip Apu, the regional governor, did this and recorded their testimony on a clay tablet. The seals of the men from each of these towns attest that this was in fact them who stated these things. The judges then questioned Wantari, who stated in his defense, My father held the Dimtu Tower of Kazuk in his lifetime, together with its fields, and I hold them now following him. I pay the Ilku taxes and work obligations for these fields and the tower. Then they moved from opening statements to presentation of evidence, where Keltesha begins by reading the document we just looked at, in which the men of nine cities attest to the name of the Dimtu lands belonging to the line of Kazuk. Kelteshub concludes that all these people recognize the claim of the line of Kazuk, and knew nothing about any claim by Wantari. The judges then turned to Wantari and said, Now, nine towns have testified for Kelteshub in his favor. We invite you now to bring your own expert witnesses and present your own evidence. Wantari's reply, however, was simple. I have no experts. Inasmuch as Kelteshub read aloud before the judges the tablet of Hatip Apu, the regional governor, that nine towns testified for Kelteshub in his favor, and that the cylinder seals from the nine men and from Hutip Apu, the regional governor, were rolled on the tablet, certifying it as authentic, and further, as Wantari has no experts or evidence, the judges reach a verdict in accordance with what is written below on this tablet. Namely, Kel Teshub won the case. Kel Teshub took the Dimtu Tower of Kazuk, together with those fields on the west of the town of Etesheni, north of the town of Azira, and east of the Dimtu of Ulaya. This tablet was then signed by the scribe Uri Teshub and sealed by a number of judges and witnesses. And so, Kel Teshub won, collected all the documents that I've read to you here, and put them in a cache to ensure that if anyone ever challenged his claim on the Dimtu of Kazuk, he would have a legal basis to prove his claim. What happens next is unrecorded, but one assumes that either the illegal squatters left after this, or were removed by the military force of the Mitanni Kingdom. Perhaps the most important part to keep in mind is that Kelteshub and the men he represented it almost certainly had no intention of actually occupying the land that they'd just fought for years to recover. These were wealthy men, wealthy enough to access the legal system for years on end, and almost certainly they wanted this land to rent out to tenants. It seems likely that at some point in the past the land had gone vacant, probably for lack of tenants, and only with Ukuya's sale of the land did it become evident that there were in fact people who would be willing to rent this land. So we shouldn't be seeing here some farmers reclaiming their ancestral home, but maybe more like some landlords kicking out some folks who weren't paying rent. 
In all of this, there are plenty of unresolved questions that the documents are uninterested in answering, but which we're naturally curious of. What happened to Hutia? What was the nature of the Dimtu itself? What was grown there? How many people lived on this land? And what did it look like to live there from day to day? And of course, why exactly did Ukuya, the man who started this whole mess, think he owned the land? Well, we can't answer most of those, but as to the last one, our story, remember, comes from Kelteshub's point of view. And while we should believe that the documents we do have represents what actually happened, it's possible that there are parts of it which were not preserved in this cache, details that would perhaps be unflattering to Hutia and Kelteshub's point of view. And so, I'm going to propose two possible stories of what Akuya may have had in mind. This first story, perhaps the one most naturally suggested by the documents we have, is not flattering to Okuya. In this tale, Okuya arrived into the town and called Belshunu and those he worked with, perhaps by letter. Perhaps Okuya saw that the Dimtu fields were empty in a particular year for some reason and decided to make a bit of money by selling a plot of land to which he did not have title. Okuya quickly wrote up a deed of sale, giving the land a false name, helping the new owners move in, and then left town with his profit. Soon enough, Hutia and the men who actually owned the land saw that people had begun squatting, and when they complained, these new owners showed the seemingly valid deed of sale, thinking themselves in the right. There are indications that the situation here persisted for quite some time, perhaps with force threatened on one or both sides, before the court got involved. Here, however, it was Hutia's word about an ancestral claim against a seemingly valid deed of sale, and it's likely that none of the judges were necessarily local men, or at least perhaps not local enough to know the details of this particular dimtu. On the face of it, a vague claim against one backed up by a valid-seeming bill of sale seems a bit unbalanced. However, it wasn't clear enough for the judges, and so the matter was referred up the chain. The ancient world had no superior courts. Issues were remanded up to the ultimate authority, the king. But here it seems the deception was uncovered, or at least suspected, when no central records were found. With this uncovered, and the survey of the neighboring towns finding unanimously for Hatia, the court then looked more closely at the bill of sale, hunting down and addressing the man who originally sold the land, or at least the man's son. It is possible that, in fact, this took quite some time, which is why the original litigants have all vanished. And here, in the end, it was found that Okuya had never, in fact, held any true claims to the land sold. However, there is another reading, one perhaps more sympathetic to Okuya. Perhaps Okuya, in fact, had a claim, one inherited from the seemingly mysterious Tabukur. In this interpretation, perhaps with the Mitanni conquest, the king at the time really did transfer ownership of the Dimtu of Tabukur as a reward for some service or even just to get men loyal to the new regime scattered around the kingdom. Perhaps the new name of the Dimtu was announced only briefly, long ago, and the new owner never got around to claiming it until his descendant Okuya tried to sell it. 
Now, this story has holes, most glaringly why the king didn't back up Okuya's claim, and perhaps there existed another Dimtu of Tabukur that somehow got confused for the Dimtu of Kazuk. There are many such stories we can tell to fill in the gaps, and while we probably can't ever know the truth for certain, what's clear in all of these is that whatever happened, we have here a deeply human story, featuring characters who are behaving in ways we would often expect today, and in a legal system in which the broad outlines have very similar features to the legal system today throughout the world. Which, for me, is really the heart of the story. We see many fun little cultural aspects of what it was like to be a Hurrian living in a Mitanni town here, but what we really get from this is that legal drama, investigations, problem solving, and peaceful conflict resolution, which we might see in a modern cop show or a modern courtroom, are really things that all humans have the capability of coming up with. The Hurrian legal system seems so similar in many regards to our legal system because these are humans encountering human problems and dealing with them in the same way that we would. Next week, we're going to see another universal human feature on display as we dive even deeper into the archives to reveal a tale of sex, scandal, and corruption at the highest level of city government. It turns out that not only were the Hurrians capable of solving problems in recognizably human ways, they were also capable of being venal, selfish, and irresponsible in a recognizably human way. So join us next week as we uncover a web of corruption throughout the city hall of Nuzi, a web whose tendrils will reach all the way to the very top. Thank you for listening.